Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Basically, there were two Hillmans. There was Hillman, the writer, public speaker, and ideologue, and Hillman the analyst, and they were two different, totally different people. And, of course, Hillman the analyst was much nicer than Hillman the public figure. figure, figure. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with David Tacey, an Australian public intellectual, writer, and scholar. David has written and taught extensively on Jung, spirituality, and Christianity, and is Professor Emeritus of Literature at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and Research Professor at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture. In the conversation that follows, David shares his memories of meeting and working with the renowned post-Jungian writer James Hillman. While I've spoken with other people like Thomas Moore, who worked closely with Hillman for a number of years, this is the first time I've talked to someone who is actually in analysis with him. In our conversation, David offers some unique insights into Hillman and his work, as well as a few criticisms. Some of you might know David from the articles he published a few years ago critiquing Hillman's work and legacy titled The Unmaking of a Psychologist. Those articles were my first introduction to David and his work, and I've come to really appreciate his outsider perspective on Hillman and the Jungian approach to religion and Christianity. David was very generous with his time, so I've decided to split our conversation into two parts. The second part will deal more specifically with Jung and Christianity. Okay, that's all for now, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with David Tacey on the medicine path. I'm here today with David Tacey calling in from Melbourne, Australia. About 24 hours into the future. <laughs> we were just discussing it's uh, evening where I am on the west coast of Canada and uh David's just getting started. The following so for, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well thanks for joining us today. I appreciate you making the time. That's fine, thank you. So um maybe as a lead in, just uh let the listeners know that uh 
I've been listening to some of your lectures that were published through the uh, Melbourne Young Society and uh, reading some of your writings and really enjoying them. And I guess I was first introduced to your work probably about five or six years ago when you wrote some uh, papers that were critiquing James Hillman's psychology. Mm. And then uh, you popped up on my radar recently with these uh, podcasts that you've been on. So uh, it's been great getting to know your work. I really appreciate what you write about and speak about. Thank you. Mm. Well, I wonder if maybe we could start, uh, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what it was like to do uh, analysis with James Hillman. I've talked to people who knew him as colleagues and worked with him in the men's movement and other things, but uh, I've never spoken to anyone who actually uh, was an analysis end of his. Yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be delighted to. Um, what, what you've got to realise that here in Australia, I've got no one to talk to about these matters. So thank God for you North Americans. Uh, <laughs> I like live in a parallel universe to the rest of Australia, you know, People like James Hillman haven't even been heard of yet, let alone people ask me what was my experience of him like. He's made no inroads into this culture at all. Um, we in Australia are very close to Britain. We were, of course, a former British colony, and we had a referendum about um, the idea of separating from the British um, monarchy and Australians voted against it. Hmm. So we are still very much, you know, the queen is on our, all our coins and the, the head of the queens is on our, um, our dollar notes. So unlike America, which fought Britain was for independence, we're the opposite. We just love Britain and can't get enough of the British. So that's a very different culture. And as a result, I make this comment because Hillman's not well received in Britain either. They don't, they're not interested in Hillman in Britain. He seems to be <coughs> exclusively of interest to North Americans and some people in, um, in Zurich and uh, Switzerland and France. Of course, um, Japan is interested in Hillman. Now, Brian, I, I didn't go to work with Hillman as an, an analysant initially. Hillman tricked me into it. Uh, he's, a, he's a trickster. I won a, a postdoctoral fellowship from a group in New York City called the Harkness Fellowships. They're, they're people that back the, some of the Ivy League universities like Yale University money into uh, Stanford as well on the West Coast, Harvard. <clears throat> and um, so I finished my PhD and then, um, which was on uh, psychoanalysis and literature, the two areas. And they said, uh, what would you like to do in America? And I said, well, I'd like to uh, work with um, somebody in North America who's in, in the Jung field. The only one I could think of was James Hillman. Although there was also David Miller at Syracuse, who I could have worked with as well. And I think that would have been a good choice as well. David Miller's work is incredible. Um, but all the other Jungians like Edward Edinger and Robert Johnson and well, all these people weren't academics. So I had to, as an academic, I had to work with another academic. So I chose Hillman. New York was very opposed to me going to Texas. Um, they said no good could come out of Texas and why don't you come up here to the Northeast <coughs> and work with, you know, with one of the major universities. Anyway, they eventually let me go to Dallas, Texas. Um, the idea was that the Harkness Fellowship would pay Hillman for uh, having conversations with me for three years. <laughs> that was a vain hope. Um, and um, 
because, of course, I was only a youngster. I think I was uh, <clears throat> still in my 20s. Um, and um, I just wasn't well-versed enough in the field to entertain Hillman in weekly conversations. So he gave me an ultimatum and he said, you can either scoot off somewhere else, basically he was brushing me off, or you can become my patient in analysis that I'm not going to have any more conversations with you because you, you're not at my level, which is true actually. I was nowhere near his level at the time. We're talking about 1982. <clears throat> I mean, he was so far ahead of me. Um, I accepted that, although I thought it was a bit arrogant, you know. But, you know, arrogance and Hillman go together. You know, he's a very arrogant bastard. And um, he was never afraid to express his opinion on anything or to anyone. I actually spent a month in Dallas sort of sulking. And then after the month, I, I decided, well, I might as well go become his, his fucking patient, you know, although I didn't want to be. And I couldn't tell the people in New York because they would have ordered me out of there immediately. I'd won this very prestigious award, which was equivalent to the British Rhodes Scholarship um, in America. And the idea of becoming a patient would have been abhorrent to them. So I had to keep that from them. And I did. And Hillman pretended that we were having our weekly tutorials, as they were called. But in fact, he wanted to see me twice a week. Um, so he cost the Harkness Foundation more money than, than was originally planned. And uh, so I saw him twice a week for one hour analysis. He was a brilliant analyst. And I didn't feel any of his personal problems like arrogance and pig-headedness and ideological rigidity in analysis. I, in fact, I found him to be a, an ideal Jungian analyst, despite the fact that his writing was all supposed to be post-Jungian or non-Jungian, some of it even anti-Jungian. And I used to say to him, actually, after about a year of working with him um, in analysis, I, I plucked up the courage and said to him, you know, there's nothing Hillmanian in your analysis with me. You know, it's all pure Jung. And he admitted that he hadn't yet figured out a way to apply his Hillmanian work <clears throat> to the clinical situation. So he basically, basically there were two Hillmans. There was Hillman, the writer, <clears throat> public speaker, and ideologue, and Hillman, the analyst, and they were two different, totally different people. And, of course, Hillman, the analyst, was much nicer than Hillman, the public figure. And um, when I say nice, I, I, I mean um, he wasn't being deliberately confronting or anything like that. He was just a brilliant dream analyst, and, and I worked with him for three years. And um, he solved a lot of my problems, problems I didn't even know I had. And, of course, that's, <laughs> that's the... That's, That's the trick of, of uh, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, Tacey, you've got a lot of shit to work through. And, 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 and I had to agree with him, uh, particularly a father complex of mine was very strong. Hillman uh, honed in on that father complex very quickly. Well, it was probably resonating with his own. <laughs> <laughs> it was, Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, his father complex is partly why he got involved in the men's movement later, mm -hmm. you know. But um, so I, I had nothing but a, a, a wonderful, good transference, as Jungians call it, to him. Um, 
So he played the good father to you pretty well? Yes, he yeah. did. And what was fascinating was halfway through my analysis, my real father came to America for some reason. I don't know why, but he just felt like he'd like to come on see America and see me. And Hillman found that hilarious that working on working on my father complex drew my actual father to to visit me in the States um, with my mother. That uh, was father my father's idea. He'd never travelled before in his life, and so it was a big deal for him to leave Australia and come to America. Hmm. That's sweet. Yeah. Yeah, isn't there something about that, though, is that uh, when we start to heal our father complexes, it uh, maybe allows our own father to do their own healing in a way. I think that's absolutely right, because... Ten years earlier, I was working on my mother complex and uh, with a Jungian analyst who was in Sydney. <clears throat> we used to exchange cassette tapes. I was living in Adelaide, which is the capital of South Australia, about a thousand miles from Sydney. And we worked on the mother complex. And my mother used to say to me, she didn't know anything about psychology, of course, or Jungian stuff. Um, that she could feel something shifting between us. Um, in fact, she started to have dreams, um, which she told me about, which were very similar to the dreams I was having about her. So this is this field of synchronicity that they're talking about, you know, like as within, so without, <coughs> you know, you work on things inwardly, not realizing they're going to have external repercussions at the same time. And um, she came to me once in Adelaide with tears in her eyes. She says, I keep dreaming that you're rejecting me. She said, um, I, uh, I dreamt that I gave you a birthday present of some underpants and you handed them back. To my, I handed them back to my mother and I said, I don't need your underpants anymore. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> and it really upset her because she loved to buy me underpants. You know, yeah, she, she wasn't ready to let go of her little boy. <laughs> exactly. And uh, underpants, of course, obviously partly symbolize the connection with the, the male sexuality, you know, your balls. Are hanging in those underpants and uh, protected by mommy's underpants. <laughs> yeah. And she controls the underpants. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is phenomenal for me. Oh, how, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so cold here. It's freezing cold in, in where I live. It's summer here. I mean, it's a it's summer for you. It's winter for me, and it's winter with a vengeance. Mm. Snowing not far from where I live. Oh, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, so we have global cooling here, while you people have global warming. So that—that's the Hillman story. <laughs> yeah, I. What do you think? Um, I know that you've taught for many years. I'm, uh, I'm not sure, though. Did you have a clinical practice? No, I never did. I, I, after a while, I, after a few months, it had occurred to me, I might as well be using the Hillman analysis as part of a training to be a Jungian analyst because God knows what I was going to do with my life. You know, I mean, um, I don't fit. I've never fitted and still don't fit into Australian society which is only interested in sport and politics. They're our main interests. Anything but looking at yourself, you know, people here don't look at themselves. If you tell people you're in analysis with someone, they'll think that you're basically, you're mad. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> so we are pre-psychological mm. Australia. So um, 
I, I started to say to Hillman, I might as well use this as training. At the time, he was uh, <coughs> hooked into a group in, in of Jungians in America called the Interregional Association of Jungian Analysts. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll have to keep records. And, but my visa ran out before I gained enough analysis to, to qualify um, to complete the training. So by the time I came back to Australia, <clears throat> I was actually qualified for nothing. Um, so I've never practiced, I've never had a clinical practice. It's kind of bizarre because I'm a bit of a public figure here, often on radio. Um, years ago, I used to be on television quite a bit um, because of the stuff I was doing, raised some public attention. And I was always introduced as a Jungian analyst. Um, but I had to, first thing I'd have to do is to say, I'm not a Jungian analyst, I'm, I'm a Jungian scholar. But people didn't know what a Jungian scholar even was. So uh, I, eventually I, I let, let them call me a Jungian analyst. And, uh, yeah, so that was the situation. And when I returned from <coughs> working with Hillman, I worked in literature departments in universities uh, here for about 35 years. Um, and in those literature departments, I set up courses on Jung and Hillman's work. And uh, students loved it. The staff hated it, however. They, the staff didn't like the fact that these courses were so popular um, for a start. So it raised hostility. <coughs> but, you know, Jung and Hillman are hardly major on any literature departments or syllabus, you know, which is about Shakespeare, Jane Austen and, and uh, William Faulkner, etc. So I managed to find a niche, so to speak, for my interests in literature departments. Hmm. And I retired from literature departments about seven years ago. And so now I'm a private scholar um, and uh, and, and writer, I'm continuing to write books mm. in, in the same field. <clears throat> yeah, I'm curious, uh, is there anything that you learned during your analysis with Hillman that you apply to your own kind of self-analysis or dream work? Anything that jumps out at you as being kind of unique that you learned from him? Mm. Oh yeah, hugely. I mean, I'm very much a product of Hillman. Um, uh, I think the first thing I would say to that is that when I wake up in the morning and I'm trying to recapture the dream or dreams, <clears throat> that Hillman taught me that my first interpretation is probably wrong. And the, the ego wakes up as we wake up and the ego um, is often keen to twist the dream in the direction that's positive to the ego. So Hillman's view, of course, which was similar to Jung's, was that the dreams are usually critiquing the ego. They're not massaging the ego. Mm. They're giving the ego a hard time uh, because the ego never, almost by definition, lives up to the expectations of the unconscious or the expectations of the self, <coughs> which I still talk about the self, <coughs> excuse me, even though Hillman tried to knock that out of me. But I was always more Jungian than Hillman was comfortable with. I liked the ego self axis in Jung. Um, Hillman thought it was basically a whole lot of nonsense. And he hated, actually, the idea of the self. He hated mandalas. He hated unity. He hated integration. <clears throat> he was a very typical postmodernist. You know, he thought fragments are, are great. Plurality is great. Not being unified is great. Um, 
I completely disagreed with him on, that, on those matters. <coughs> I felt that Hillman's ego was much stronger than mine. I come from a family where the unconscious is very strong. My background is Irish, and the Irish live close to the unconscious. In fact, they're often swimming in it. Mm. And um, my family, my parents and siblings were all swimming in the unconscious. And so I could not afford to take on Hillman's um, adulation of plurality and fragments. Um, I was very scared of being fragmented um, by the unconscious. My sister, who I was very close to, was a paranoid schizophrenic, and she switched personalities in the course of the conversation. Mm. And I was terrified, actually, of her schizophrenia while loving her as my sister. Um, Hillman didn't grow up in that kind of psychologically unstable atmosphere. And so he, he had a more robust ego than me. Um, <clears throat> so I was always more interested in Jung than Hillman because Jung held out the possibility of the integration of the opposites and the mandalas, which I didn't, you know, rubbish and, and condemn the way Hillman did. So we had very different personalities. And at the personal level at first, we didn't get on at all. He, he used to say to me, I can smell Jung on you. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, of course he could. I mean, I clung to Jung all throughout my film and analysis. Um, but the other thing that you, uh, I could say is that to stick with the image is one of Hillman's major points. He doesn't want you to convert the image into a concept or convert the dream, which is a series of images, into some sort of pat Jungian formula about you know, my struggle with the archetypes or whatever it is you're struggling with. <clears throat> and so he taught me to, and Tom Moore is good on this too, because I also worked with Tom Moore in Dallas in an informal capacity. Tom Moore was, became a closer friend of mine than Hill, Hillman. Um, Hillman remained aloof to me. Um, Tom Moore was very warm, loving, very personable. I saw him every week uh, in a dream group, which Tom ran. Uh, from memory, I don't think Tom even charged us, or maybe he did. But quite a few of us um, studying with Hillman at the Dallas Institute befriended Tom, and Tom befriended us. This is before Tom became famous, long before. You know, he'd just written books like uh, Pacino's Planets Within. <clears throat> I think another book, Dark Eros, but this was long before the big book came out. Care of the soul. Yeah, a book on the Marquis de Sade wasn't going to get him on Oprah, that's for sure. <laughs> Tom was amazing. I loved Tom so much. He was really the best part of my visiting America was knowing Tom and mm -hmm. uh, befriending Tom. He was apparently in analysis with Hillman's wife. Uh, Patricia Berry. Yeah, yeah that Berry. And he admired and revered her very much as he she still did. he still does he still speaks quite highly of her oh yeah as yeah. she does too i mean they they formed a lifelong friendship i got to know pat a little bit but not much both pat and jim remained aloof to to youngsters like me uh, and that's fair enough you know they were very professional clinicians both of them hmm. yeah you know uh Kind of like one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about is 
psychology and religion and spirituality. Now, it's interesting when you talk about the differences between Hillman psychology and Jung psychology, that Mm. absence of the self, I think, is really key. From my perspective, one of the things that irks me about Hillman and um, keeps me from fully embracing him is his anti-spiritual attitude and Mm. the lack of a God image or the organizing principle in the psyche. Yeah, he yeah. was just allergic to the God principle or the unifying. He had an allergy to it some kind. I don't know. Of course, he wasn't Christian, obviously. His background was Jewish. And his foreground was Jewish too. I think the memory, his grandfather was a rabbi, uh, quite a well-known rabbi up in the Northeast, I think in New Jersey. Um, Hillman... Hillman was very dismissive of the Jewish Christian tradition. That really upset me because I was born and raised Christian, uh, still have today much respect for Christianity, uh, huge respect for Jesus, but I don't think Hillman even respected Jesus. Uh, and Hillman's work was kind of pre-Christian. Um, you know, it was all focused on the Greek gods. Yeah, it's like pagan psychology or something. Yeah. And he, he wrote, and and this is some, one way in which his analytical work and his writing work were similar. He conducted himself as if Christianity never existed. He just ignored it. And I think that upset Tom Moore. Tom Moore used to be a, a Catholic priest, Catholic brother in a Catholic order, Mm -hmm. and I was also Catholic um, and still am, nominally anyway, part of the Catholic Church. Um, And uh, so when I would have dreams about Christian symbols or themes, Hillman would often groan. (laughs) You know, he he would say, oh, not, not Christianity again, you know. I found that a bit objectionable, actually. That's that's one thing that I thought was overstepping his his role as an analyst is to to have the impudence and temerity to start critiquing my religious point of view. Well, uh, critiquing your dreams. I mean, if we're sticking yeah, with yeah, the image. Yeah, yeah. Um, once I, I dreamt that I had uh, a big hole in my hand, or, or no, it might have been here. Um, it was obviously a, a link to the resurrection, to the crucifixion, and the and the the, the big hole, the wound in my hand, uh, gradually turned into a diamond. Hmm. This dream, and I think the dream was, was saying that uh, Christianity is still incredibly valuable for me, and it's like the, if I look at the the wounds of Christianity, which Christians like myself have, it can eventually turn into a, a gem of great price. I can remember Hillman sitting there just groaning, um, which really annoyed me. Um, One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, an association comes up for me. Just to mention, uh, before we started recording, we were 
talking about Robert Moore. And I've studied his work pretty deeply. And toward the end of his life, he was starting to work with this image of the psyche as a, a kind of double diamond shape. Oh. Uh, so like one pyramid stacked on top of the other. Uh, so almost like a diamond type shape, which is interesting. Yes, poor Robert Moore. Oh, dear. Billman didn't like Robert Moore. He he kept making too structural. Comments. Huh? Too structural. Yeah, he didn't like Robert Moore. He hated Robert Johnson, um, who I also admired. Um, so maybe those two things go together for Hillman, being Jungian and being Christian. You know, both those things he wanted to run away from. But well, one didn't, didn't sorry, didn't Jung say at some point that to understand his psychology you'd have to study the Bible? He did. <clears throat> but Hillman was an, an anti Jungian Jungian. <clears throat> one once at Dallas we had a visitor from Canada called Ralph Maud. M-A-U-D, from uh, Simon Fraser University in Alberta, Canada. And I can remember after a public meeting, Ralph Moore raised a question at the end of Hillman's talk, which I thought was fantastic. And Ralph said, I'd like to go back to basics, James. He said, how come you're so completely enamoured by the Greek gods and goddesses when the Greeks themselves got tired of their gods and goddesses and embraced Christianity, you know, and they embraced Christianity hugely. And still the Greeks embrace Christianity today. And Ralph Maud said, there seems to be 2,000 years missing in your psychology mm. um, about why the, you, you never are, uh, we never discuss why the Greeks abandoned, and the Romans, of course, abandoned their um, their pantheon, their, their Homeric pantheon. Um, that doesn't seem to be of interest to you. And Ralph Moore raised another question, which I thought was fantastic. Um, we have, in Canada and America, we are living on Indian soil. And why don't we make an attempt to come to terms with Indian uh, spirits, ancestors, and mythologies? <clears throat> and Hillman couldn't answer either of those questions of Ralph Maud. And I thought that was very telling. And um, I didn't know what became of Ralph Maud, but I thought, wow, what an astute critic of Hillman he is and a lot of guts to make these comments in front of Hillman himself that Hillman just squirmed out of it um, mm. as we'd say in Australia he fudged them mm -hmm. but I think these are important because in Australia we live on indigenous soil as well um, Aboriginal people are the original inhabitants and the British an Irish, like my background, came here only 200 years ago. And I think that any interest in spirituality at least must pay dues toward the original inhabitants. So I've written three books on Aboriginal Australian cultures, stories, spiritualities. And even now I'm working on another book. Um, and that was all partly inspired by Ralph's comment to mm. Hillman that, you know, we, we, we live in this sort of super intellectual world where we're totally convinced of Persephone and Demeter and, and Hermes and Dionysus are, are real, um, that we neglect Christianity, which is the big gap in Hillman, and we neglect the indigenous myths and stories. I can see some indigenous motifs behind you on your wall. Mm -hmm. And uh, I too have indigenous motifs on my wall. <clears throat> and uh, 
So I think it's very important not to be exclusive about our interest in mythology and religion. And I've always um, felt it's very important to pay our due respects to the Indigenous people at, to the extent of finding out, taking the trouble, find out about their mythologies and not just to cover it all over by yeah, our... Pave it over. Yeah, mm -hmm. pave it over by our love of the Greeks, love of the Romans. Hey, David, uh, something's going on with your microphone. There's like a rustling sound that's coming oh, through. Oh, sorry. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that because that to me has stood out as a huge gap in Hillman's writing, just not even dealing with the the issues of Christianity and, of right. course, uh, the indigenous history of North America and the colonial history mm. just seems like a total um, denial and avoidance of the issues completely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, as I said, Hillman had no answers to these questions. I don't know how Tom Moore fared with Hillman. I think Tom wasn't as confronting as I was. Tom just accepted that Hillman had no interest in Christianity and no interest in North American Indian culture either. I don't think he wrote a word about the North American Indians. Anything he wrote about Christianity was negative. Um, but Tom, as I said, had a different personality to me. Australians are inherently different from Americans. Yeah, Canadians too. I mean, we're at a remove from the United yeah. States, and you know, we still got the Queen on our money as well. Have you? Yeah. Really? I didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that allows us to be a little more critical of mm. these uh, American gods. Mm. You know. Yeah. But uh, the Americans aren't critical of American gods. <laughs> I Not found. so much, no. I mean, they embrace them, of course. Um, and uh, oh, I love Americans. I mean, if it wasn't for America, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't well, like what you're talking involved. about with Hillman and his uh, the boldness in his writing, I mean, that to me is something that I admire about some of these big American thinkers is uh, that American spirit coming through the confidence and the boldness and the audacity, you know? Like, I think we need that in order to shake yeah. things up. Yeah, exactly. Um, the only problem with American major figures like Hillman, uh, Robert Bly, you know, these sorts of people, um, is that um, they often boast about being original uh, it seems to the Americans have this need to be original. Mm -hmm. They want to be a, what um, what uh, people, uh, what Eliad, Mercy Eliade call a source country. They want to be a source mm -hmm. of ideas and information. And one of the reasons why I wrote those critical essays on Hillman that you mentioned is because after Hillman telling me and all of his other followers in Texas for many years that he was original, when I came back to Australia, I tested out his originality and found that he wasn't very original at all, that almost all the ideas of Hillman, um, particularly the anima mundi, which, of course, he freely acknowledged was borrowed from the Florentine Renaissance thinkers like um, uh, Ficino, Vico, yeah. these people, Bruno, and also Plotinus, um, that Jung had integrated that as well. Jung talked extensively in his works about Anima Mundi, and I couldn't mm -hmm. find one idea in Hillman that had all had not been explored already by Jung. And so I decided that I'd have to write this. I published these essays in London, of course, because I wouldn't get a hearing in America um, because of Hillman's status in America. But the British loved them. 
and the British public. <laughs> they probably love them for the wrong reason. Yeah, the right. problem, the problem, uh, finally, someone's going to take a shot at them. <laughs> yeah. The problem with the British is that they don't take Hillman seriously at all. Mm. Um, whereas I do. I mean, I gained a lot from Hillman as well as being critical of him. And uh, I don't think that the British respect Hillman enough. So they're far too suspicious of Hillman. They didn't like his showy, arrogant style, which was very anti-British. You know, the British show uh, mm, different, different grain of the, the mm -hmm. psycho psychology. So, uh, and those two articles I published in the London Journal of Analytical Psychology uh, basically argued that the only thing original about Hillman was his style of writing. Hmm. He had a very great and very open, accessible, colloquial, conversational style, which, of course, um, is very apparent in his work uh, interviews mm -hmm. um, with uh, apparently with a, an Italian interviewer. I think interviews was a hoax. I don't think that woman ever even existed. Uh, I think I think interviews was him interviewing himself. Um, and that's okay. You know, he, he's a trickster. Um, and the other book he did with um, that uh, Los Angeles journalist called... Yeah, Michael Ventura. Michael Ventura, The World's Getting Worse. We've had 100 years of psychotherapy. It's, those are... That's Hillman at his best. You know, he's very conversational, very American, casual language. Jung, of course, writing style, very turgid, difficult, you know, hard to, you know, you, you can't give Jung to, to the average person and expect them to read it. You know, they just toss it away. The thing that Hillman picked up from Jung <laughs> that I, I hate about both their writing is that they'll drop foreign language terms in there and never give you a translation. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God we've got Google now because uh, when you'll drop some Arabic term or some ancient Greek term, I put them in Google and I find the answers. But, yeah, yeah it's very arrogant of you uh, to drop all these, you know. It's show-offy, right? Yeah, um, but Mr. Google helps us out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can only read Hillman on my uh, my iPad now, so that I can quickly <laughs> look up some of these whatever French or Greek terms he's dropping. Um, well, I, I love hearing these recollections. You know, a big part of my role in the podcast and the work I do has really been archiving. Um, some of the elders in spiritual and psychology worlds. It's it's not something I had planned to do, but it's kind mm. of who I'm drawn to speak to. And uh, mm. so I, I love kind of hearing these anecdotes and your reflections on your experience of this guy who, you know, kind of gets deified over here. And uh, we don't often hear what it was like to, to be with him. Exactly. He's deified. Not among everybody, because after all, he, he never got a job in the university system, you know. Oh, well, he did in Dallas, but that was thanks to Bob Sardello. Um, Bob Sardello um, drew him to the University of Dallas. And when Hillman got sacked <clears throat> from the University of Dallas, and Bob Sardello left with him, and Pat Berry as well, and um, quite a few other people walked out. Hillman had to be sacked wherever he was. He was sacked from Zurich. He was, you know, asked to leave the canton of Zurich because he'd been having a sexual affair with one of his clients. Um, and the client's husband, who was a Christian minister, found out. There's a bit of shadow for you. <laughs> the Christian element came back up into... <laughs> Came back and bit him back on with the a vengeance, <laughs> like a vengeance. Wherever Hillman went, he was he had to be sacked because that's 
His primary archetype, I think, is the trickster, Hermes. I used to notice when I was sitting in his office twice a week that the, even the typewriter to use, because this was long before computers, was called Hermes. Um, <laughs> I probably love that. <laughs> yeah. He's a Hermes character. You know, he's a brilliant Hermes character. Yeah, and even, the tap, even the tap dancing is very Hermes, yeah. you know? Well, look, he, he, he's amazing. I mean, I loved and hated him um, and primarily loved him, but um, professionally I, th I sort of disliked a lot about him. But he, he's amazing and very Hermes uh, tricksterish in whatever he did. And um, so the, um, yeah... Um, I, I don't know what stories you hear, but I, I think um, that, that in, in, in the university system, his his name is not very good at all. You know, there are hardly yeah, you got to you got to go to Pacifica to study Hillman. Yeah, but that's like a cult there. You know, like it's a Hillman <laughs> cult. You can't expect a Hillman cult. To be very objective about Hillman, you know, I mean, sure, yeah, they're going to turn out Hillmaniacs. Hillmanians, I used to call them. Yeah, about Hillmaniacs. Well, they, well, they call themselves Hillmaniacs now. Oh, do they? Somebody <laughs> once at, somebody once uh, said because I had posted something by Hillman on my Instagram. They said, "Oh, you're a Hillmaniac like us." I said, "Not quite." <laughs> <laughs> Pump the brakes. No. <laughs> That was the problem of me going to Dallas, Texas, is that I was surrounded with Hillmanian followers, whereas I was there as a postdoctoral fellow from the university system, as was Ralph Maud from Simon Fraser in Canada. And the people with university backgrounds, interesting, he was Canadian, not American, and I was Australian, not American. But we, um, we used to annoy the Hillman followers with our critique. Um, but I, I, I think that um, Hillman encouraged this adoration of himself. I, as far as I could see, spent three years there, he did nothing to dissuade this adoration. Quite the reverse. He did a lot to encourage it. And that's what raised my suspicions. You know, I think a real teacher discourages cult-like following, not encourages it. You know, real teachers, particularly like if you think of uh, Jung, for instance, he, he, Jung would often piss people off deliberately so that they wouldn't idolize him. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, Like Robert Bly, too, who, uh, you know, Hillman ended up working with later on, uh, I think maybe even consciously or unconsciously to work out that father complex, but Bly was very much uh, projected onto as, you know, this great father figure. Yeah. And he would uh, completely tear that apart, apparently. Like, he used his trickster aspect to to break through the persona, break through people's preconceptions mm. of him. Like, someone said once that he was on stage and things were just starting to get too serious. So he reached over and grabbed the flowers out of the vase and started eating them. So he would just, like, play the fool in order to kind of break the... You know that facade. I noticed Bly only died last year. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 used, I knew Bly years and years and years, uh, long before I met Hillman. I met Bly um, because Bly used to come here to Australia to, to give poetry readings hmm. and things like that. So Bly was very important to me, but. When Bly and Hillman teamed up, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in what they were. It seemed like a, a pretty transparent backlash against feminism. Um, and uh, Bly was disappointed in my published attack on his work. Uh, in 1990-something, I published a book called Remaking Men which was sort of an attack on Robert Bly's men's movement and Hillman's part in it too, although I think it was mainly Bly's movement, not Hillman's. But, although Robert Moore was involved and Michael Mead and a few other people. Um, 
and I was far too feminist, you know, coming from the university system, which is basically a feminist system, I'd integrated and internalized a lot of that feminism. And I, I didn't think that, as Blythe thought, that men need to recover from their pain and their suffering. I, my, view, my view is that it's time for men to feel some pain. Hmm. Women have felt pain for centuries and have been quiet about it until now. This is the feminist in me coming out. It's quite a bit strong personality in me. It's time for men to feel pain, to hurt, to suffer, to know that they're not as ensconced in society as they were a couple of generations ago. And I, I was born in the 50s, 1950s, and grew up in the 60s. And most sons in the 1960s were having problems with their fathers particularly about the Vietnam War, which was a focus of it, because, you know, I, I refused to go to the war, uh, although I was called up to the Vietnam War. My dad took the opposite view. He was a soldier. He fought Japanese in the Pacific Islands in the 1940s, spent five years killing the Japanese. Um, until the war was ended by the American atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. My father was very strongly martial. You know, he taught me how to fight. Uh, I used to get bashed up at school because I was regarded as too feminine. And my schoolmates thought I was homosexual. But actually, I wasn't. But I was very feminine. I'm still very feminine. Um, the anima is huge in me, and that's something Hillman and I had in common, was this total fascination, obsession to the anima. <laughs> Hillman once said to me, you know, I've written a whole book on the anima. Uh, what was it called? A history of a personified notion or the anatomy of a personified notion. He said, but my wife has just left me and I feel a complete wreck. It's as if I hadn't done any work on the anima at all, you know. And that, that's when Bly came along, by the way. Just, you know, Hillman had just experienced a very, for him, traumatic collapse of his marriage. And Bly knocked on the door and Hillman opened it. Hillman was in a mood to recapture the, the masculine spirit, you know, to, to write stupid books like the, Terrible Love of War, which I think is an appalling book, um, and to write other books which I thought were absolutely appalling. I keep reading them and thinking, surely this isn't the Hillman writing crap like this. And America loved it. I mean, these books got on the, on the bestseller list of New York. Oprah Winfrey interviewed Hillman about that pretty dreadful book called The Soul's Code. You know, I hated that book. <laughs> wait, wait, slow down. That's one of my favorites. I I always thought that Hillman was better <laughs> Hillman was better with an editor. <laughs> so his force of character and Soul's Code, I think, are his most readable books for sure, but most kind of coherent as well. Yeah. Not Thank so you. full of anima. Well I liked his pre I liked his his, his pretty famous style. Yeah. Revisioning Psychology remains one of my favorite books of all time. No one reads it anymore. Um, Tom Moore pointed out to me that at once that Revisioning Psychology only sold about 15,000 copies in America. Mm. And yet to me, it's like a Bible. I think it's his most important work, that stuff on personifying and seeing through. And I mean, it's amazing. The, the book is amazing, and that's the Hillman I love. But that late work, I think, is disgusting. And um, <laughs> it was all influenced by Robert Bly. You know, mm. bloody hell, Robert Bly did a lot of damage, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I think he captured Hillman at a time when Hillman was feeling vulnerable. 
And I pointed out to Hillman in some letters because we used to write letters to each other. In 1972, Jim, you said that analysis ends with the acceptance of the feminine. That's in his book, The Myth of Analysis. And all he said was, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. And, and ever since, like, his work was in the opposite vein, you know, about how the need to drum up these bloody masculine. I'm still a feminist. Obviously, you can hear that in my voice. I think that we live in a feminist age. This is one of my beefs against Jordan Peterson, your fellow Canadian countryman. You know, he, he makes a living out of the backlash against feminism. God knows what, if, if Jordan Peterson, Robert Bly and Hillman got together, what kind of mischief they would have got up to, you know, and what kind of millions of followers they would have ended up having. And Well, here's, here's my, my theory. Someone who comes from a working class background and played uh, group sports when I was a kid, you know, our religions here are hockey and more well, hockey, <laughs> but also baseball, <clears throat> less yeah. so. Uh, but I was three years old. My dad got me on skates. You know, as soon as I could walk, I was on a pair of skates. But those three men, Jordan Peterson, Robert Bly, James Hillman, I don't think had much of the male bonding experience growing up. And I think they're looking to kind of recapture that or to live that experience for the first time late in life, which is too late sometimes. Too late. Yeah, too it's late. a bit embarrassing sometimes. I said to one of my friends, uh, Bernie Neville, who's another writer in the Hillman area, uh, lives in, uh, lived, he's passed on now, lived in Australia. I said, were you in ever interested in Hillman and Bly's men's movement? <laughs> His answer to me was, no, David, I did all my male bonding as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I mean, you know. There's something to it. And so... <clears throat> Bernie wasn't interested in this uh, male bonding stuff. And uh, I thought it was beneath Norman. I, but you liked the Souls Code? Well, I hated it. Um, <laughs> and I, I can remember throwing it at the wall. <laughs> you know, thinking, this is rubbish. This, this is a guy with a this near genius writing crap like this to please the, the popular masses of North America. It's just rubbish. Well, apparently it bought him a swimming pool in Connecticut. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and the force of character, I didn't like that either. But the love of war, God, you know, hmm. no, 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 no. It's just all the rise of Mars in his astrological chart late in life, you know. It should have come up earlier, not now, what, when yeah. he turned 70 or whatever. Well, yeah, we, we're... We were um, kind of talking before we started recording, and I think the differentiation I have about Hillman is that, uh, you know, he certainly had an appreciation for the feminine, but he wasn't so much about empowering the, the feminine. No, exactly. He found empowering the feminine very, very, um, he was very fearful of the empowered feminine, I think. Mm. But... Uh, you know, that, that book, The Love of War, was based on a conference paper he gave in New York to a peace conference, a world peace conference in New York. I think it must have been the early 80s. And he gave two talks, I think. One was on the apocalypse and one was on the love of war, uh, Mars. And, of course, they hated him at that conference uh, for trying to speak up for war. Um, <clears throat> in a peace conference, but that's Hillman. That's that's what he did. That's what that's what the trickster does. Everybody sitting in their chairs, nodding about how bad war is, and Hillman's got the guts and the balls to get up and say, "Hey, you know, there's some good aspects of war." And like, it must have. It, I wasn't at that conference, but people must have been dumbfounded. You know, who like, is who this invited guy? this guy? Yeah, who invited this guy to ruin the party? Um, <laughs> but that's what the trickster does. Like Hermes, 
um, just wrecks the party. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.